Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio 10 verses, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 through 25. I'm going to call this section of Scripture Exhortations for Church Life and Family Life. Our context is this. In the first 15 verses of Colossians 3, Paul has talked about the new man that the Colossians had put on at the time of their conversion. So he's appealed to their status, who they are, and now he wants them to walk out who they are. And so he's going to talk about practical exhortations and admonitions in this section of Scripture. So we start in verse 16. Paul says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, the word of Christ that's supposed to richly dwell in the Corinthians, that refers especially to Jesus' teaching, which we today, of course, have in the Bible. They didn't have that back then at the time of Colossians because the teachings of Jesus were mainly transmitted orally, as the NIV Study Bible says, and all the letters have not been collected into the canon yet. By implication, the word of Christ could refer to the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, as the NIV Study Bible says, because both the Old Testament and New Testament were created by the Spirit of Christ, as John Gill says. Well, be that as it may, the Word of Christ, what we today call the Bible, Paul wanted to richly dwell within the Corinthians. Now, notice that there's no conflict here between doctrine, the Word of Christ is basically doctrine, words concerning, objective words concerning the objective faith and objective reality of believing in Jesus, connected with subjective, heartfelt emotion, because Paul says in verse 16, he wants them to sing with thankfulness in their hearts to God. Now, just as a point of application here, you constantly hear people complain about modern-day Christian hymnology. It's repetitive and it's doctrinally shallow, which in many cases is true. But on the other hand, there are other songs which express Christians' thankfulness in their hearts to God, which might be doctrinally shallow, but they are expressing thanks in their hearts to God. And so I I tend to take a moderate position on that. I, I hate to see all this criticism one way or the other. It's not either or, folks. It's both and. We need doctrinal content in our praise songs, and we need thankfulness from our hearts in our praise songs, too. Now, Paul uses three words for songs here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I have read a lot of people trying to distinguish those three types of vocal musical items, but I can't see that anybody can make that that distinction. I don't think they can do it, so I'm not going to worry about it. Now, going to the point that our psalms should be doctrinally rich, let the word of Christ dwell in you, and then the next thing Paul says, he talks about psalms and hymns. What he means is he wants the word of Christ to be in those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's how we get the word of Christ in us. And that's really true because I remember, you know, 30, 40 years ago listening to hymns and done in very catchy little tunes that we used to sing in the charismatic movement. And those song, those scripture verses are still in my head. In fact, when somebody reads a song to me, I, the tune automatically pops into my head. It's a very extremely effective way of getting the word in you. I remember Arius the heretic used to do that. He used to put his Arian Jehovah's Witness, Jesus as a junior God nonsense, his heresy into forms of songs. And pretty soon all the people in Alexandria were going around singing these heretical songs to stick it in their heads. So, It's a great way to have doctrine and songs tied together. Now, some have noted that some of the 
most important doctrines of Christianity are in Christian hymns that are still preserved in Paul's letters. Now, I'm going to read you some of these hymns. I don't look at them as hymns because I'm used to just reading them as Scripture, but scholars, certain scholars, have said that these were actually hymns that Paul was quoting. For example, and as I read these, please notice about the how rich the doctrinal content is in these hymns. For example, Colossians 1, 15-20, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, dominions, rules, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Maybe this is the next verse, I don't know. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Next verse perhaps. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth the things in heaven. Now that, folks, is a hymn. Can you imagine singing a song like that in a modern-day church? Let me quickly give you some other examples. Ephesians 5.14, for this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. There's a little scriptural song there. Here's another one, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, a, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, this is the famous canonic scripture, one of the most contested and discussed theological portions of the scripture. It was part of a hymn, a song. That's doctrinal content, folks. 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Congregations singing these types of psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, they're going to know the word. Now, of these spiritual songs, one of them is that is mentioned is psalms. And the NIV Study Bible says that refers to Old Testament psalms, some of which may have been set to music by the early church. Or, the NIV Study Bible says, they, these songs may refer to songs newly composed for Christian worship, in other words, new psalms. So, you know, again, nobody knows what these what the distinction is. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says this, What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm? Well, that could be an Old Testament psalm, or it could be a newly composed psalm by the believers. I don't know. I don't really think it matters. But we do know that as we read through the Scriptures, what an extremely integral part of Christian worship singing is. It is not a minor thing. Listen to these spiritual songs that were sung in Revelation. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song. These are angels, excuse me, uh, martyred. Christians, worthy are you to take the book and break the seals. Revelation 14, 13. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. Revelation 15, 3. And they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. There's a praise song for you. So singing is very, very integral to New Testament worship. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul says we need to sing these psalms to one another, and admonish one another in doing so. You warn somebody with a psalm. Usually you warn somebody with a strict verbal warning. I mean, to sing, to to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is kind of unusual. Well, I guess, you know, you get the scripture in you that does warn you against sin and straying. Paul himself, in a parallel passage in Ephesians 5.19, says to the Ephesians, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. I'm telling you, man, singing Christian songs and hymns, singing to one another and singing to God is one way to chase the blues away. 
Now, when it says giving thanksgiving in your hearts, that does not mean you mentally sing in your hearts. That means the thanksgiving is in your hearts. The singing is outward. And by the way, when it says songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that most probably refers to more than just Old Testament songs. There's a group of people in the Reformed tradition today who have run across, they call themselves psalm singers. They say only psalms will be sung in church. Well... I don't want to get into that. I don't know how in the world they defend that. I'm sure they do. and That's one of those controversies that seems so ludicrous to me. I don't want to spend my scarce time in investigating. So I won't say whether how they justify that scripturally. But right here, a spiritual song, that could be something that you have made up as a Christian or that some Christian composer somewhere has made up. I do not believe that it has to be David and his fellow psalmist that have written something that you sing in church. I just don't know where, how people get off on this kind of stuff. Now, Adam Clark's got a good quote here. He's trying to advocate the point that songs should be mel- melodic and relatively simple so that the average Christian can sing them, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. As I just finished saying, I'm, I, I have no musical talent, but when I was young, 30, 40 years ago, in the early charismatic movement, we used to sing these simple songs, and they're still with me, and some of them are quite beautiful. Like somebody said about country music, is three chords in the truth. Well, some of these simple songs that we used to sing to the Lord with three chords in the truth. Here's what Adam Clark says about this, quote, The singing which is here recommended is widely different from what is commonly used in most Christian congregations. Now, remember, Clark's writing in the 1800s. What is commonly used in most Christian congregations? A conjuries of unmeaning sounds associated to bundles of nonsensical and often ridiculous repetitions which at once both deprave and disgrace the Church of Christ. Hmm, sounds like he's talking about Bill Johnson's, what is that, Revival? I forgot the name of that group, that famous Christian group at Bill Johnson's Reading Church, that charismaniac church out there in California. But he's not. He's, he's talking, writing in the 1800s. He talks about ridiculous repetitions which at once both deprave and disgrace the Church of Christ. Melody, which is allowed to be the most proper for devotional music, is now sacrificed to an exuberant harmony. And I'll say today... Melody is sacrificed to rhythm, especially with this so-called Christian crap music. Excuse me, Christian rap music. Melody is now sacrificed to an exuberant harmony, which requires not only many different kinds of voices, but different musical instruments to support it. I think what he's talking about is the elaborate choirs and church music that has sprung up over the years. And by these preposterous means, the simplicity of the Christian worship is destroyed and all edification totally prevented. And this kind of singing is amply amply proved to be very injurious to the personal piety of those employed in it, even of those who enter with a considerable share of humility and Christian meekness. How few continue to sing with grace in their hearts unto the Lord. Now, that's the truth, folks. You listen to the people that sing in church choirs and they get, and they sing all these cantatas and they sing Handel's Messiah and all this. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about their music and their beautiful voices. And it's so complicated, the average guy in the pew can't join join in with it. Not that there's anything wrong with beautiful music. I played some the other day when I was getting my hair cut on my CD player, Handel's Messiah. I love it, but I don't worship God with it anymore than I worship God with country music. I love country music. I love bluegrass, but I don't worship God with it. Unless it's a bluegrass gospel hymn, of course. I mean, you can do that, but but still, it needs to be simple enough so that the average Christian can sing it. So I think Clark's exactly right about that. Let's go to Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do in word or deed, note 
how evangelizing or teaching is lumped in with good deeds. Whether, whatever you do in word, that would be if you evangelize, if you teach, mix it in with deeds. Whatever you do in word or deed. So here the examples of word would be evangelizing, listening to teaching, singing, conversations with one another, prayer. Notice that word thanks. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks. How many times does that show up? I never have done a Bible study, just a, a, a word search on thanks, but it's everywhere in the scriptures. I mean everywhere. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. And once again, Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And I'm sure I can find a hundred more scriptures that say the same thing. It was a big deal for Paul, giving thanks to God when you pray. Be thankful that you're not going to hell, because that's what you deserve, my friend. You and I both and everybody on this planet deserves to be roasting in the fires of hell for what we've done to our Heavenly Father, our Almighty, Holy Heavenly Father. That's what we deserve. So give thanks that that's not where you are. And not only that, not only for eternal deliverance, but also for temporal deliverances, because you're going to get yourself in trouble all during this life if you're a human being. There's so many bad things that happen in this life. Thank Give thanks for God how many times he's pulled you out of the fire. Paul says to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That reminds me of people who will pray, and then they'll say, thank you, God, and don't ever mention Jesus. I don't know. I think all in the name of the Lord Jesus would include praying to Jesus. Why not pray and say in Jesus' name? Didn't Paul right here in Colossians say, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? I mean, it's a minor, minor thing, I guess, to complain about that, but it bothers me, so I'm going to ventilate a little bit right here about that. We go to Colossians 3.18. Now, Paul is going to move from how the new man should behave in church context, and now we're going to talk about how the new man should behave in family and work context. We're going to talk about wives. We're going to talk about husbands and masters and slaves. So Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Then IV says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, of course, this verse condemns our whole feminist culture. Feminists think this verse is crazy. But it's not the verse that's crazy, my friends. It's the feminists that are crazy. Now, to give you an example of how feminists wreck people, just last night, early in the morning, about 1 o'clock in the morning, I, I got a call from a young Chinese Christian woman who was getting ready, well, she had just actually talked to her ex-husband and apologized to him for all the feminist stuff that she had practiced in her marriage. It turns out that she was raised as a Christian, and she was very submissive to her husband. Her husband was not a Christian, and he was kind of a, you know, your typical non-Christian guy. He didn't abuse her or anything, but he, he was he was selfish and self-centered and a go-getter. And, a, you know, he, looks, he sounded like a fraternity jog. I never met him, but he didn't sound like the best husband in the world. But she was very submissive to him. And then she ran into a feminist friend of hers who had been divorced four times. And that feminist friend said, but now... Don't you have your own desires and your own dreams and your own ambitions? And as a result, this young Christian, this young woman, she said, I don't want my child and I don't want my husband. And she basically just left, left the child somewhere. Sometimes she carried the child with her, but basically left the child to be looked after by others. And she went gallivanting all over the world, surfboarding, windsurfing, kayaking, mountain climbing, to enjoy what she wants to do and not her marriage. Well, just last night, or just her yesterday, she calls the husband over on the pretext of a parenting question about their common child. And when he gets there, he, she says, I just want to apologize to you. He says, no, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. 
you're forgiven, you're forgiven. She says, no, I want you to hear me out. I want you to hear me out. And he did. And he sat there and listened to that wife. And she said it was hard for her to do this. And she said, sometimes I couldn't look him in the eye. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. She says, I did everything wrong. I wanted to be independent of you, and I ruined our marriage, and I'm so sorry. Folks, this thing about feminism, feminists will destroy your home. They will destroy your life. They will destroy your church. They will destroy your culture to Gehenna with feminism. I will not be on the defensive about this. Oh, and the average Christian will read this. Oh, my gosh, it's so oh, 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 I don't know what I'm going to say about this. I've got to explain it away. No. Let's be thankful that Paul put it in here because this is the secret to happiness for wives and for husbands. Now, we must note, it, note that Paul is assuming that these are Christian wives subject to Christian husbands. Well, it's real easy for a wife to submit to a godly Christian husband just like it's real easy for me to subject, subject myself to Jesus Christ. So we've got to give it some context here. That's not explaining it away, but that's giving it some context. And also, it's be subject to your husbands in the marital relationship, not in civil things like, for example, if your husband tells the wife, if a husband tells his wife to go rob a bank, the wife says, no, I can't do that. You are exceeding your authority. Or if the husband, like in Madame Guillon's case, when the husband said, you're not going to pray to God. No, no husband's got a right to tell his wife that she can't pray to her head, Jesus Christ. That's nonsense. This is talking about in domestic affairs, be subject to your husband. If your husband wants to take a job in Timbuktu, you follow him to Timbuktu. If he wants to put your child in such and such school, well, then you put your child there. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk to your husband if you're a, a wife, and you shouldn't object if you don't like what the husband's doing. You know, you discuss things, but bottom line is like this Christian, this uh, Chinese wife talking to me last night. She said, you know, no home could have two masters. It just doesn't work. It, no, it doesn't work. It'll never work. That's why her feminist friend was divorced four times. Now, most teaching on this subject is a reaction to something. It's not trying to find out what Paul really meant, which is what I just told you, but it's reacting against something. For example, it's a reaction against legalistic teaching that makes a wife a mindless appendage to the husband, which is not what Paul meant. And unfortunately, legalists have, legalists have taken this thing and says, wives, submit to your husbands, even if he's an SOB. Turns out that it ends up with women, Christian women are supposed to act like the ancient Chinese women did, where they were basically chattel slaves. There are very few Christian writers today who will affirm what Paul literally said. Now, here's an example. This is the NIV Study Bible. The wife's submission said to be the mutual submission of husband and wife. Mutual submission? Is that what it says? Well, here's how they defend that. They go to Ephesians 5.21 and say, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Really? Mutual submission. So the husband is supposed to submit to his wife. That is not what Paul meant. Let's go on with the other cases in Ephesians 5 and 6. Are parents to be mutually submissive to their children? Well, you wouldn't say that, would you? I, who knows? And then I mean, study Bible might say that. It depends on how much they're imbued with the sickness of feminism. Are slaves to be mutually submissive to their masters? Of course not. What that verse means is when it says you to be mutually submissive, it means that if you're in one group, if, say, you're a child, you're supposed to be submissive to your parents. Children are supposed to be parents, submissive to your parents. Or if you're a slave, you should be submissive to the, your masters. Each group in the church is supposed to submit to the other group, depending on what your status is. But at any rate, a lot of people just see that verse and they say, oh, that means that the woman is supposed to be barefoot, pregnant, mindless, like a dumb blonde at something. That's not what Paul is. He's, Paul's not reacting against that. He's just saying, wise, be subject to your husbands. Or it could be a reaction against feminism, which is the other extreme. 
Wives are so independent, so therefore we must excessively emphasize submission. Keep those women in the control. That makes submission a legalistic and forced obligation and duty, rather than a joyful act that brings joy to both husband and wife. Submission to Christ is joyful. We never moan and groan about that. A critic might object to what I just said by saying, well, but the husband's not Christ. But remember, Paul is talking to Christian husbands here. And he's already told them, as in Ephesians 5, your job is to wash her with the water of the word and to die for her if necessary. A lot easier to submit to something like that. Now, what does it mean to be subject to? The Greek word is hupotasso. Here's Strong's definition of hupotasso, to arrange under, to subordinate, to subject, to put in subjection, to subject oneself, to obey, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice, to obey, be subject. It's a Greek military term meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Well, folks, that's what submission means. That's a strong word, but Paul is talking about submitting to Christian husbands. He says this is fitting in the Lord. Now, what does he mean by fitting? Well, John Gill says it could mean that, that Paul is saying that it's appropriate to the original creation order that wives would be subject to their husbands because women, a woman, the woman was created out of the side of the man. And, of course, that old saying, you know, he's, she's created out of the side of the man not to be trampled on by him but also not to rule over him. Side by side, they face the world, with the man being the leader and the woman being the supporter. Now, I've already mentioned that this sub subjection or submission is only in the domestic sphere and that husbands are not allowed to overstep the boundaries of that sphere in their authority. So maybe that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, be subject to your husbands as long as it's fitting in the Lord. As long as your husband doesn't tell you to go out and rob, rob a bank or watch pornography. We go to Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The NIV for embittered has harsh with them. Don't be harsh with your wife. Holman Christian Study Bible says don't be bitter toward them. Here's a great quote from John Gill. Husbands should, or husbands, quote, turning love into hatred of their persons, ruling with rigor and in a tyrannical manner, behaving towards them in a morose, churlish, and ill-natured way giving them either bitter words or blows, and denying them their affection, care, provision, protection, and assistance, but using them as servants, or worse, all which is barbarous, brutish, and unchristian, and utterly unbecoming the gospel. Sounds like some husbands I know. There's, old, there's a Chinese proverb that says, if you can find a mother pig that can climb a tree, I can show you a reliable man. And, and every time I hear one of my young Christian uh, Chinese friends talk about they've got a new boyfriend. They're guilty. They're guilty until they're proven innocent because that proverb is based upon observation. <laughs> Somewhere thousands of years ago in Chinese society, somebody started noticing this about men and they made up a proverb about it. And men can be very disgusting. So it's it's a difficult thing to submit to a husband. Anyway, for one thing, because of the sinful... Because of the flesh of the wife, a wife's flesh is not naturally going to want to submit to a husband. So that's why if you're a single Christian woman, you, by God, you better find a good husband because it's not going to be easy to submit even to a good husband, especially to a indifferent or an SOB type husband. Here's what Adam Clark says. This is a great quote. Where love is wanting in the married life, there is hell upon earth. I used to practice divorce law. I've done some divorces. 
It's hell, buddy. My parents were divorced. They ain't nothing good about it. You want the secret of married life? A man needs to learn what it means to be a loving servant leader, as people call him now. And the wife needs to learn how to submit to that loving servant leadership. If you do that, then you're going to have heaven on earth instead of hell on earth. Colossians 3.20, Paul moves now to the children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, of course, in everything means in everything moral, of course, as the NIV study Bible, Gillian Clark, point out. Here's an example, not of parents and children, but of citizen and state where Christian Christians disobeyed the state because the state exceeded its authority. Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles replied to the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities of Jerusalem, we must obey God rather than men. Hmm, you must obey God rather than men. Sometimes it comes to that. I just heard a guy who was in a training in the Air Force, the United States Air Force, and there was a woman teaching an ethics class and she was saying, you as soldiers of the United States, where do you get your ethics from? And the answer was, through your the government, what the government tells you is where you get your ethics from. And, and my Christian, the, the Christian who's relating this story said, you know, it's so hard to be a Christian because my ethics don't come from what my government tells me. And that's the sort of stuff that, you know, when Adolf Hitler tells you to go shoot a Jew, well, that's my ethics. The government told me. No, sir, man. So children, obey your parents in everything that has to do with the parent-child relationship. If your father tells you to go out and help him rob a bank, you don't do it. Notice that Paul says obey your parents in everything. Parents is plural. That means the mother has authority over a child just like the father does. Now you can get into questions like, well, when does that end when they reach 18 and become adults and all that? Well, I'm just giving you what they call the black letter law, how you apply that law. You better ask for counsel and wisdom and pray for knowledge of the Holy Spirit because I realize that life is complicated. Colossians 3.21, Paul now moves to the fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Now, why it does the, is the father particularly singled out not to exasperate their children? Paul didn't say fathers and mothers or parents because a mother could exasperate her child too, but he particularly picks out fathers. Well, here's some possible reasons. First of all, a father is especially burdened with responsibility for disciplining children. And it's easy to screw up your discipline and exacerbate your child rather than training your child or disciplining your child. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Non-great Santini fathers who go around, hey, you need to get your haircut, you know, that kind of thing. That's not going to, that's not the way you raise children. But fathers are more likely to put onerous demands on their children because of their desire to train them. Now, here's a good quote from John Piper. Fathers have the uncanny ability to cause their children's souls to shrivel into small, hard, angry shells. How? By being like that themselves. In Ephesians, Paul dealt with anger in adults back in chapter 4, 31 and 32. If the dad is angry and empty, so too will be his children. Anger is like defective DNA that the father passes on. Also, the masculine nature is not as soft and nourishing as women is, and so they're more likely going to exacerbate a child. So that's why Paul picked out the fathers. Here's another possible cultural reason. Fathers in the Roman Empire had extraordinary legal power over their children. They had the power of life and death over their child. Patriarchal potestas, it was called. He could kill the child if the child was rebellious. The father could reject a newborn child and sell the baby into slavery, give the baby away, as Warren Wiersbe has pointed out. So, Paul may have been especially worried about the fathers abusing their power in the Roman Empire. Here's another quote from the old 
commentator Bingle, quoted by Jameson Fawcett and Brown, a broken-down spirit is fatal to youth. It sure is. You should always encourage your children. Never tell them they're stupid. Never tell them that they are failures. Constantly tell them that they are successes in Christ. And I'll tell you one thing. After watching Chinese parents raise their kids, or talking mainly, mainly talking to college students on how they were raised by their parents, it's horrible how they do it over there. Your sister is prettier than you. Your cousin is making got a 99 average in algebra, and your average is only 98. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're going to bring shame on our family. Shame, shame, shame. You're a worthless pile of crap. And, of course, the Chinese justification for that is, well, it, it encourages the children to work harder. Yeah, right. I do know that a lot of young Chinese people are rejecting that old traditional Chinese way of raising kids. But there's a lot. it's not just in China. There's a lot of that here in America. I've seen it personally. Great Santini fathers, I call them. Colossians 3.22, Paul now leaves the family and goes to work relations. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Again, everything means everything related to the master-slave relationship. It doesn't mean if a master tells a slave you can't pray to God, well, I'm sorry, he's going to pray to God. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Now, of course, leftist unbelieving critics will say, see here, Paul is condoning slavery because he didn't condemn it. Paul, no, Paul is not condoning slavery. Read that verse very carefully. You will not find one word of condemnation for slavery. Now, he doesn't condemn slavery either because that's not his point here. He's not writing about the pros and cons of the institution of slavery. He's trying to deal with the conduct of Christians who were forced to operate within that institution. Now, of course, if Christians, slaves, do this, obeying their masters, when the master says to do this or do that in the work during the work day, and if they don't get lazy when the master's not watching, but they do things on their own, a master's going to like that. He's going to be pleased by that. And then what's he going to want to do? Hmm, we need to think about emancipating this slave. Maybe when I die, I'll put it in my will. Or maybe I'll just emancipate him in advance. So that's why Paul is telling Christian slaves to fly right, even though they're slaves. Now, Paul here is going to spend a lot of time on slavery. Why does he spend more time writing about slaves and masters rather than wives and husbands, children, and parents? Well, here's the possible answer, according to the NIV Study Bible, is because the very letter of the Colossians is being carried to Colossae by a slave, Onesimus. Philemon lived in Colossae. He was Onesimus' master. So this letter would have special interest to Onesimus and Philemon as slave and master. And so Paul spends a good bit of time on it. We go to Colossians 3, verses 23 through 25. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically. Now that you could either refer to the Colossians, but I think it's referring to slaves because he's just finished talking about slaves. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord, not for men. Well, it's real easy when you're a slave. And let's put this in modern context. Your boss tells you to do something you don't want to do. Well, if you can have the attitude, the boss said for me to jump. I don't like jumping, but he asked me to jump. So what do you do? How high, boss? How high do you want me to jump? Workers like that get promoted. Managers love that type of worker. Do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord, not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. The idea here is, well, you can't accumulate capital and accumulate wealth for yourself because you're a slave, but there's a compensation for that. You're going to get an inheritance for the Lord, so don't worry about the fact that you're a slave. Do it, do it just for the sake of the job itself, even though you're not getting compensated for it, because you're going to get compensated in heaven. 
You serve the Lord Christ, in other words, by doing for your master when your master's not watching you, but doing it enthusiastically with a good heart. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, your master, your heavenly master. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there's no favoritism. I've always read that as the wrongdoing slave, but actually it could be the wrongdoing master will be paid back. In other words, do what you do enthusiastically, even if your master is not behaving right, he's behaving wrongly towards you, he's going to get paid back. You're going to get an inheritance from God in heaven, and he's going to get some payback for his wrongdoing that he's done to you here on earth. For there's no favoritism. God is looking for sin. He is looking to condemn sin and to praise righteousness. Whether you're a master or a slave, it makes no difference. There's no favoritism with God. And so that means, and that's one more indication that Paul is talking about the wrongdoer being the master because he says there's no favoritism. That usually, that means he's trying to show that the master is not getting special treatment because he's a master. So let's assume that this wrongdoer will get paid back for whatever wrong he has done. Therefore, you don't need to try to pay him back now by being lazy and not working and having a bad attitude toward him here on earth. Now, here's some examples of what the slave owner could be doing wrongly, not providing food and clothes like he's supposed to, not giving them agreed upon wages if, if, if there's wages involved in the slavery relationship, which might have been, I think, under Roman slavery. I can't remember. Or the slave owner could be abusing the slaves verbally or beating them or that kind of nonsense, beating them for no reason. So, if that's the sort of stuff that's being done for the slave, Paul's saying, hey, he's going to get paid back for that, so you don't try to pay him back with lousy attitude and with lazy work. This idea of wrongdoing of a slave owner is actually explicitly mentioned by Paul in the next chapter, which really should have been in this chapter, Colossians 4.1. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, food and clothes, medical help, since you know that you two have a master in heaven. Or the wrongdoing could be for the wrongdoer will be paid back. It could be, as John Gill points out, the slave's wrongdoing. For example, being lazy, neglecting business, embezzling money from the master, pilfering things from the master. Now, pilfering was a huge problem in southern slavery. I remember the, the slaves are always lifting things. So that's the sort of thing. It would be very tempting to do that because you don't have, you can't go out to the market and buy something. You're a slave. So you say, well, I'll just take it from the master's cupboard. And I know from reading about Southern slavery, I think a lot of masters just kind of winked at it, said, well, okay, they're pilfering, let them do it. We're not going to say anything about it. But it can, I could imagine why it'd be irritating to have your stuff being stolen all the time. And so Paul said, no, if you're a slave, you don't do that. Don't pilfer. But I really don't think that's the wrongdoing Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about the wrongdoing of the master because there's no favoritism. God will pay back the master just like he'll pay back the slave. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished with Colossians 3. Exhortations towards how the new man should behave in the family and and in, in the church, in the family, and in the workplace. In our next audio, I'm going to try to do the whole of chapter 4 in one audio, and we'll talk about Paul's co-workers with him there in Rome, which has always been an interesting subject to me to see who the Paul's supporters and helpers were. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 